Welcome to a special Christmas edition of Outflow. Today, we want to help make your season even merrier as we take a look at the Christian significance of some Christmas traditions. So, Grab a cup of hot chocolate and let's get started. I'm Alan King, and this is a special Christmas edition of Outflow. Why do we trim trees and ring bells and place candles in our windows? Why do we drape our doors with holly and teach our children about a nice old man who brings gifts? Are these practices pagan or could they possibly have significant Christian origins? I think understanding their beginnings can bring Christ back into family festivities and magnify the celebration. But before we get started, I just kind of feel like we need to set the mood. Uh, so let me see what, uh, what we can do here. Um, okay. And uh, Maestro. Much better. Christmas as we know it was first celebrated in A.D. 200, almost 200 years after Jesus was born in the manger. The word mass means a gathering. This was not necessarily a Christian word. There were public masses, religious masses, and political masses. The church world adopted this term and began to celebrate different types of religious masses even before there was a Catholic church. In AD 200, it was determined that a mass should be held to celebrate the birth of Christ. So the first Christ Mass was held in AD 200. Since no one knew the exact day that Christ was born, it was decided in AD 354, not during Paul's day, as some have suggested. It was voted to hold this Mass on December 25th. Before this time, Christ Masses were held anytime churches just wanted to recognize and celebrate the birth of Christ. You could do it once a week, once a month, once a year. It was up to the church. These worship services in remembrance of Christ were the first Christmas celebrations. The Christ Mass became one of the holiest of all Masses. Soon, prominent people began to make the gathering more meaningful. People like St. Nicholas of Myra, the original St. Nick. Let's talk a little bit about him. Who was St. Nicholas, or uh, who we now refer to as Santa Claus? The real story of Nicholas is such a treasure that I hope you'll take the time to become acquainted with. This is a real-life Christian hero. Nicholas was born about 270 A.D. in Turkey to wealthy parents who died during his childhood. Early in life, he became a pastor and began to give away his wealth. Now, Nicholas was a bishop by age 30, and he led a large group of believers in the area of southwestern Turkey on the Mediterranean Sea. Tradition says that he always introduced himself as Nicholas the Sinner. He was known to spend 
very much time in prayer and in Bible study. He wore the standard bishop's robe of his day. It was red, representing the blood of Christ. It was trimmed in white fur because it was a wintry climate. The white of the old bishop's robe represented the purity of Christ. Now, it was customary during those days for bishops uh, to travel. Their transportation was a sleigh pulled by reindeer. Any of that sound familiar? St. Nicholas was indeed a real man who spent his life helping the poor, especially orphan children. There's one interesting true story to uh, that I love. This this uh, shows you the type of man he was. And it's the story of a farmer who couldn't pay his debts. The farmer was scheduled to sell his three daughters as slaves to pay his creditors. Every evening in the fourth century wintry climate, the people of the house would take off their socks or their stockings and they would hang them by the fire to dry. St. Nicholas walked behind this particular farmer's house that was dug into the ground, climbed to the roof, and dropped a gold nugget down the chimney. His hope was that the farmer would find that gold nugget and pay off his debt. Instead, the nugget bounced into one of the stockings that had been hung by the fire to dry. The next morning when putting on her stockings, one of the farmer's daughters discovered a miracle in her stocking. News of that spread very quickly and people throughout the village began checking their stockings every morning to see if good fortune had found them. Hanging those stockings by the chimney to dry once a, a dreaded shore now had become an, an exciting thing because uh, now there was a new hope. In AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered a brutal persecution of Christians throughout the world. The history books tell us that this was known as the Great Persecution. Christians were forced to offer sacrifices to Roman gods and goddesses or risk losing their lives. Large number of Christians were imprisoned. The prisons, once prepared for murderers and robbers, were now filled with bishops, priests, and deacons. So there was no longer room for those condemned of real crimes. During the Great Persecution, pastors, bishops, and lay people were savagely tortured, fed to wild animals, forced to fight gladiators. Women were brutalized. Men, women, and children were beaten senseless. Some were set aflame while they were still alive. Survivors of Diocletian's torture chambers were called saints, another word for confessors, because they didn't forsake their confessions of Jesus Christ as Lord. During this time, Nicholas was in prison and spent several years in Diocletian's dungeons, nearly losing his life. In 311 AD, the Emperor Constantine rose to power and ordered religious tolerance for Christians. After years of imprisonment, Nicholas was released. He served the Christians of Mira, Turkey for 30 more years. 
during this time that the famous Council of Nicaea was held in 325 AD, leaders of the Christian church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit met to determine some very important guidelines for the church, which even though it was now over 300 years old, was still considered very young at the time. It's believed that Nicholas was one of those church fathers. So you see, he has a direct influence on our lives. St. Nicholas died on December 6th, about 343 AD. Tradition tells us that Nicholas loved children, was dedicated to reaching out to the oppressed, needy children of his day. I'm sure that Nicholas wouldn't want to take credit for bringing Christmas joy to the heart of a child. Rather, he would be kneeling at the manger, just as the rest of us should be this Christmas, teaching our children that Christmas is about Jesus. What about the Christmas tree? Let's take a look at this sometimes controversial topic. Over the years, the church began to use various types of symbols to celebrate the Christ Mass. In AD 680, St. Boniface, a German bishop, was walking through a field in the dead of the winter, and he noticed that the trees and the grass and the other plant life were leafless and lifeless, but suddenly he saw an evergreen tree. It was the only tree in the field that looked alive. He also noticed that the tree formed an arrow pointing upward. This prompted him to fall on his knees and worship. Since it was impossible to bring everybody to the field, St. Boniface decided he was gonna bring the tree to them. So he took this magnificent symbol of life back to the church to illustrate how God brings life in the midst of winter. His sermon was the talk of the town and his object lesson would soon change history. For months, everybody talked about the ingenious tree sermon. The idea called on until soon others decided to bring evergreen trees into their homes as a reminder to worship God. And as the years passed, the whole church world brought evergreens into their homes during the winter season. Years later, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther was admiring a starlit night and it motivated him to worship in such a way that he tried to duplicate that by putting candles on his evergreen tree. This shrine of inspiration prompted worship in everybody who admired it. It wasn't long before people throughout Germany lit their trees to fill their homes with the inspiration of a starlit night. Now, there are some Christians that are opposed to Christmas and and are opposed to Christmas trees. And they've often argued that Jeremiah condemns Christmas trees. They believe that Jeremiah chapter 10, verses two through four is quite plain. Christmas trees are sinful, but are these Christmas critics correct? Does Jeremiah 10, two through four actually condemn the setting up of Christmas trees? Let's see what that portion of scripture says. In Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning at verse two, the word said, thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the ax, they deck it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. Now on the surface, that would seem that Jeremiah is describing Christmas trees. We gotta look deeper. An important key to understanding any passage of scripture is to pay careful attention to its context. 
These verses are part of a larger context. And that larger context is verses 1 through 16. You can't just pick out verses 2 through 4 without going to verses 1 through 16. And in these verses, Jeremiah proclaims the Lord as the only God. Part of this portion reads, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of the nations? This is your due. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. The gods that pagans worship are nothing compared to the Lord we serve. Verse 11 said, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. What Jeremiah is talking about here are mere images that are made by mortals. These verses are all condemning idolatry. In fact, verse 3, which, which reads, One cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, is more accurately translated, they cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. The tool referred to in this passage is not a woodman's tool. It's not an axe. It's a woodcarver. So it's not about cutting down a tree, but rather carving an idol out of wood. Jeremiah is not condemning Christmas trees. He's condemning idolatry. The trees in Jeremiah 10 are cut down to carve them into worthless idols that will later be decorated with gold and silver. Jeremiah says nothing here about Christmas trees. Besides, uh, that custom was not even around during the time of Jeremiah in ancient Canaan. And there are other traditions that, that have great significance. The traditions spread around the world. The Christ Mass was now part of the entire church world. In England, Christians noticed that holly was green, like the evergreen during the winter. And so soon the English church began to hang holly on their doors. When asked about the new and strange decoration, they gave this explanation. The holly on the front door is in the shape of the crown of thorns placed on the head of Christ. The holly thorns and red berries provided the inspirational note that Christ was born to die for the sins of man. The red berries gave the appearance of drops of blood on the crown of holly thorns. And when holly wasn't available, various types of evergreen branches were used to form the crown of thorns, and even red ribbons were used to symbolize the flow of blood from the head of our Savior. This was the beginning of what we now call the Christmas wreath. The night Jesus was born, a star pointed the way to the baby in the manger. This baby was the hope of the world. Soon Christmas became the season of hope. The, the words of the angels continued to ring in the hearts of men. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It soon became apparent that the best way to glorify God and be a peacemaker was through gestures of goodwill. So Christians began placing candles in their windows to light the way for the less fortunate of their community. A candle in the window was a message that anybody could receive food at that house. Can you imagine the hope of somebody wandering in the night, cold, lost, and hungry, when all of a sudden a light appears in a window? It was like the voice of an old friend saying, come on in and eat, we've been expecting you. Throughout history, 
Bells have been used as an alarm system. It was customary to put bell towers in places where the public gathered. These meeting halls were usually at city halls or churches. The alarm was sounded at emergency town meetings and fires or special announcements. When the bells rang, people left their homes and came to the town meeting hall or the church. Well, the church decided that they would sound the alarm at midnight on the eve of the Christ Mass. The alarm was to alert the devil that the church of Jesus Christ was alive and well, we were serving a risen Savior, and that monotone bell didn't play music or chimes for this occasion. Instead, they rang ominous warning to the devil that the next day Christians all over the world are going to be gathering to celebrate the one who triumphed over evil and won the victory for mankind. Of all the Christmas customs, The origin of giving and receiving gifts is probably the easiest to understand. Gifts were brought to the Christ child by the wise men. Their gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The practice began as people brought their own gifts to the Christ mass. They would give the finest gift to the church as an act of worship, and those gifts then were were distributed to the poor of the community. Later, this act of love was followed by giving gifts to loved ones and relatives. And at first, it was only one gift per person. Well, soon the retailers saw this act of love as an opportunity for profit. The exploitation of this practice, along with greed, soon turned this act of giving to Christ and others into a fiasco of selfishness and materialism. For many today, Giving gifts is more of an obligation than it is an act of love, and for most, it's anything but a Christian practice, sadly. Then there's the singing of the Christmas carols. The word carol comes from an Italian word, carolare, a traditional dance routine of circular movements uh, similar to a modern-day square dance. The uh, carolare was performed during celebrations and festivals, especially uh, during the Christmas season. Italian shepherds would come from the hillside into the towns and dance the carolare at Christmas to spread joy from house to house. house. It, It was a favorite holiday event for most of Italy. As time went on, people began to write lyrics to the music describing the dances. These verses became the first Christmas carols. Streets were filled with music and dance and festivity about the Christ child who was born in a manger to redeem mankind. One of the best known Christmas carols of our day is a song called The Twelve Days of Christmas. I gotta admit, I always thought this one was a bit strange. Why would anybody want to give their true love? Twelve drummers drumming, eleven pipers piping, ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five golden rings, uh, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Who would really want 30 people jumping and dancing and playing drums and pipes, five golden rings, and 23 birds for Christmas? What is the true meaning behind that Christmas carol? Believe it or not, it actually originated in 1558 in a Catholic schoolroom. In those days, nobody was permitted to own a Bible or study the scripture openly. 
To speak of the scripture was forbidden unless you were being taught by a priest or a qualified instructor. However, it was still important for each person to understand the faith of the church. And one creative priest came up with a system of creating songs with hidden meanings. The hidden meaning of this song brings new light to understanding the word of God. The true love of this song is none other than God himself. The me who receives the gifts is anyone who is a believer, a follower of Christ. The list of gifts symbolizes various parts of the Christian faith. The partridge in a pear tree is actually a savior hanging on a tree or a cross. The, the original implication was that the partridge was injured and stranded in the tree. Two turtle doves reminded them of two testaments, old and new, which belonged together like two turtle doves. Three French hens reminded them of the three greatest virtues of a Christian, faith, hope, and love. Four calling birds represented the four gospels that call out describing the good news and declaring what Christ has done. Five golden rings were actually the golden threads that weave the first five books of the Bible together, giving us what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Six geese laying represents the six days of creation. The laying of an egg was the universal symbol of new life and procreation. Seven swans of swimming were the seven gifts of the Spirit. Now, we understand there to be nine today, but in their day, the gifts of wisdom and knowledge and the gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues were combined, uh, so they had a total of seven. The swimming reminded them of the Holy Spirit's symbol of water. Eight maids of milking symbolized the eight beatitudes taught by Christ. The beatitudes had to do with servitude, and therefore the milking maid gives them the ideal semblance. Nine ladies dancing represented the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit produces a life of love, joy, and peace as portrayed in the ladies' festive dance. Ten lords a-leaping, you guessed it, the Ten Commandments. Laws were heralded by lords, therefore reminding them of the ten laws of God. Eleven pipers piping represented the eleven faithful disciples. Christ led them like a piper leads a group. They piped the good news to the world in the song of faithful living. Twelve drummers drumming uh, represented the twelve points to their apostles' creed. So if the song were sung according to its true meaning, uh, then the words would have to be changed and it would go something like this. I'm not going to sing it, but this would be uh, the literal translation. On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 rules of living, 11 disciples, 10 great commandments, nine fruits of the Spirit, eight beatitudes, seven gifts of the Spirit, six days of creation, five books of law, four books of gospel, three Christian virtues, two testaments, and a Savior hanging on a tree. The bottom line is Christ is Christmas. The legacy of Christmas must be told, practiced, and celebrated. Otherwise, our family gatherings and our gift exchanges become no more than a day off of work, increased debt, and a festival of selfishness. When we tell the story of Christmas, we need to tell it right. More important than the presence is His presence. Returning Christ to Christmas enhances family traditions. The legacy of Christmas is so very simple. There is no Christmas without Christ. 
Thank you for joining us today for Outflow. I hope this has been helpful to you and that we've helped to make your Christmas season a little merrier and a little brighter. I'm Alan King coming to you from the studios of River of Life Church in Bounties, North Carolina. And from all of us here at Outflow and all of us here from River of Life, we wish you a very merry Christ-filled Christmas and a wonderful, prosperous, and happy new year.